gospel lesson comes to us this morning from the good news according to St. Luke, 14th chapter. This is Jesus speaking in the context as he's been invited to the home of a rich and influential religious leader, and he's been watching how all the important people and the dignitaries take the nicest seats at the table. So Jesus said then to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Instead, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done. And still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the gospel of our Lord. Well, this morning, we actually are beginning a new sermon series for the next uh, eight weeks, including the week of Marathon Sunday, which we have a weird service because of the marathon. We meet early. So really a seven-week series uh, on why church? Why now? And so let me just set that up, this why are we doing this sermon series for seven or eight weeks until the season of Advent, which we'll uh, return to the Gospels and walk through the life of Christ together, starting in Advent. But for now, I wanted to spend some time asking this. And you probably won't be surprised by some of the stats and things I'm about to share with you. Uh, these are taken from a number of articles that have been out in various uh, forms of media in the last year or so. Starting with this. As a nation, we are currently experiencing the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of the United States. It's a fact. 40 million adults, which is almost 16% of the U.S. population, 40 million adults were formerly regular Christian worshipers, and they have decided that they no longer desire to ever attend church. These are now what people are calling the, the de-churched, or the rise of the nuns, that is, they belong nowhere to no, no thing. They don't subscribe to any particular religion. For the first, first time in eight decades that Gallup has tracked American religious membership, for the first time, more adults in the United States now don't attend church than do attend church. In their book, uh, a couple of pastors also got together with a whole bunch of research firms that did a lot of statistics and uh, data surveys in here. They have a book called The Great Dechurching. Who's leaving? Why are they going? And what will it take to bring any of them back? 
They say this in there. More people have left the church in the last 25 years than all the new people who became Christians in the first great awakening plus the second great awakening plus all of Billy Graham's crusades combined together. More people have left in the last 25 years. Now, most of you probably already know this. If you are a churchgoer, you've seen it happen all around you. You wonder what the future is. I, myself, even though this is my vocation, often wonder, why does anyone show up to do this on a Sunday morning when there are so many other compelling things and comforting things to do that they might take their time to do? It's also interesting that roughly 90% of Americans still say they believe in a higher power. And so when you start to study it, it turns out it's not that people don't believe in God, but more and more, they don't really believe in the church. The problem isn't God, these authors say. The problem is the world of the modern church. And in their words, they say, institutions in America tend to work for people who are on a traditional American path. Unfortunately, they say, the church has become one of those American institutions. Now, I can and we will kind of, over seven weeks, explore some of the reasons uh, that the church is inadequate for the needs of modern people often. The ways that the church has hurt the world or contributes to a, a decline in sort of uh, social cohesion, but also in setting forth Jesus as something desirable for people to explore and be welcomed into. We'll explore some of these reasons together. But what I want you to hear, just as this is just a little bit of an intro, I'm going to pray and then we'll, we'll consider our text this morning. I want us to hear and believe, especially if you're visiting, that there are dozens and dozens of reasons, and many of them compelling, to not be a part of a local church. All you really need is one sufficient reason to stay or to start coming. All you really need is one sufficient reason, one that is powerful enough. And I hope that you'll do as the disciples did when on occasion, on one occasion, it says everyone turned away from Jesus. His teaching was too hard and they're all disappointed and so they were going home. And he looked at his disciples and he said, how about you? You too? Do you want to go away as well, he asked them. And Simon Peter said, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believe that you are the Holy One of God. Where else could we go? And I hope you'll hear and experience that Jesus really is the reason to stay. And then we're going to talk about the church. And as we talk about the church as an institution and an organism, we're also talking about our congregation in the process of inheriting this property and being able finally to open it up and to use it for lots of purposes throughout the week. What kind of church do we want to be? What do we want to be about? What do people want to know us for? We're going to ask those questions. But the one sufficient reason to consider going to a church again or staying if you have been going to one is Jesus himself. He's the one that has the words of everlasting life. He is the Holy One of God. He is the one who can give us abundant life. And I want us to see some of the ways that he does that that he is still about the work of giving himself to people in the world. I mean, when they talk about the church, the New Testament says it in so many different ways. It says that we are, and I think I just skipped this part, we are God's flock, his field, his family. We are a new temple of the Holy Spirit. We are branches in the vine that is Jesus. We are his nation and people. We are the new priesthood and the place of worship, a light on a hill, a city of shalom. Most importantly, the church is called the body of Christ, his actual body, and he's the head, and we're all joined to him and to one another in this new body. We are the body of Christ. We're also called the bride of Christ, the one that he loves 
and gives himself up for, gives his life for, and tends and nourishes, and is prepared a feast where there will be an everlasting celebration, like a great wedding feast, a great banquet like he talked about in his parable that we heard earlier. And so Jesus seems to love the church. He seems to still want to work in and through it. And so I hope that you'll be even just touching the hem of his robes in these specific ways each week. You'll begin to press through even our broken and messy and sometimes unfaithful congregation and actually get to the source, which is Jesus, the head, the bridegroom, the one who loves you and still wants to give himself to the world even through his messy church. And so we're going to look at seven things in the next seven weeks. I'll give you a hint of what they are today. We're going to consider for a few moments what it means to be a place of welcome in a world full of walls, a walled world. Next week, we're going to see worship in a disintegrated world, then witness in a despairing world. These three W's are core virtues of our church. And then we're going to consider incarnation in an ideological world, depth in a distracted world, sharing in a stingy world, and compassion in a judgmental world. I hope that you'll not turn away and go home, but say, Jesus, where else shall we go? You have the words of life. And though I know that was an extended introduction, let me pray for us now and give us the pause and time just to consider for a few moments what it means to be a people of welcome in a world of walls. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would use things that have just been said. I pray that you would use things that will be said by the power of your spirit to speak to each person in this room, even just one thing that they need to hear and to receive and to believe this morning. Give them a taste of the abundant life that you offer in and through your son, Jesus. Amen. So I want to start with this image that's very familiar to most of you, and that is the great settlement of uh, the Great Plains in the West in the United States of America. Uh, This is one of the things I like to look at and study and watch things about. It's just so interesting to imagine what people did not so long ago uh, just to go out into this vast wilderness uh, and, and to settle it, uh, for better or worse, what they did. And so I want to describe that as a sort of parable and metaphor for our experience. Uh, I have my own feelings about it, but without particular judgment, you might think it's a great thing, it's fine. I just want to describe the actual world that we live in. And so out west, if you go there, there's still some wide open vistas, but almost everything as it is here has been divvied up and is owned. This is from a New York Times article talking about the settlement of the west, and they, they say this. Fences, of course, keep livestock in and they keep predators out. Both of those were imperative for the settlers drawn to the Great Plains by the government's promise of free land. But on the plains in the mid-19th century, newcomers found that timber was scarce, stone walls were impractical, and living fences, usually thorny hedges of Osage orange, took years to grow. And so entrepreneurs raced to create an alternative, and in 1874, an Illinois farmer named Joseph Glidden filed a patent for two wires twisted together and armed with metal barbs. This was hailed at the time as the greatest invention on the planet, barbed wire, okay? They didn't know that, you know, Andrew Graham Bell was making a telephone. All these things were happening at the time. Everyone was excited about the barbed wire. By 1880, manufacturers were making roughly a half million miles of it every year, promising not only security but also a sense of ownership, Since then, barbed wire has become a fundamental part of the landscape of the American West. It was a commercial hit, but not everyone, of course, was pleased about its success. Cowboys rightly anticipated 
that it was going to put them out of work because they were used to moving the cattle across the plains and would no longer be able to do that. Native American communities, of course, had maintained their own land use rules for centuries and practices for millenniums, in fact. It reinforced and extended centuries of violent dispossession in their mind. They're already suffering from the near extinction of the plains bison. They also recognized that this was only going to make it harder because bison and other large animals, including cattle, wouldn't be able to just move in their natural uh, movement and migrations with the seasons. So endanger crucial sources of protein and cultural strength. Barbed wire had, it sparked ferocious disagreement so much that it was called by those opposed to it, the devil's rope. Now this seems really distant, but all I know is I love the ocean, and it is almost impossible for me to get to the beach, and I live near miles of it. We live on an island, if you didn't know. It's called a long island. We live in an archipelago, and it's almost impossible to get access to the beach. Now, you may not care about that. That's fine, but for me, it's like you have to go find the little places they've set aside for the public, and there's going to be millions and billions of people there, and why is that? It's because people decided they wanted to buy up all the land, and they wanted to fence it, and they want to make sure that you can't get to it unless you live there, and you are a certain status and income and have so much money, and you buy the parking pass to be there in the summer. This is just the world we live in. Again, for better or worse, however you feel about this, whether you're a huge advocate for private property and meritocracy and earning privileges and the blessings of life, fine. Or you're more like me, open to sharing. Hopefully, when you find yourself you know, locked out, you, want, you wish you could participate. I get it. We just need to agree on one fact. This is the landscape that we have built. This is the world we have built, a world of walls. And so wall has, walls have become a major feature of our literal and figurative landscape. You know, all the metaphor that the wall is in our culture. I want to argue at least one negative thing about walls. Walls, of course, in a broken, wounded, often wicked and unsafe world are real and necessary things. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I literally, it's been raining so much. I've just been thankful to have a literal roof over my head and walls to keep the nature out recently. Down the block from me, there's dozens of migrants living under the BQE without that. I wish that they had what I have, but I'm also just thankful for walls. I get it. We need them. They provide us safety and security. But I want to argue that there is a sense in which we build walls because deep, deep down, we have fear in our hearts. And there are real things to be afraid of, of course. But we build walls rather than trust in God. We build walls rather than get to know those we think might be our enemy or at least strangers and curious and maybe a little threatening. We exclude those we shouldn't with our walls. We build and lock doors that sometimes were never meant to exist. We build these walled worlds not only because we have fear inside, but at the end of the day, we can control who gets in. Who has the passcode? Who gets to be in the inner circle? And who gets to benefit or be blessed by our presence and gifts? This is our love, and it is limited to certain people. I won't reread this part of the, of, the, uh, of the parable that Jesus told called the Great Banquet, but he's, of course, at a dinner party behind a special door in a privileged place with all these fancy folk, and he's watching how they take the places of honor, and he has no truck with it. He's like, this is not the thing. This is nothing like the kingdom of God. And he directly rebukes the host. You shouldn't be like this and just invite your friends and your family and rich people that will scratch your back in return. That's not the world 
that is the kingdom of God. See, and that's because we know that we build walls because we have walls that we build in our hearts. And so we build them in the world. We're afraid and we put walls up in our hearts. Think about the ways we build walls in our hearts. I've already said we wall ourselves off from our neighbors in literal but also figurative ways and relational ways. We wall ourselves off from thinking about them, from exercising compassion, from walking in their shoes, from paying attention to them. And when we wall ourselves off from our neighbors, I would argue we're actually walling ourselves off in some sense from ourselves, because like a home with many rooms and you lock the doors, there's some part of us that is meant to be compassionate. There's some part of us that is meant to get to know other people. There's some part of us that is meant to receive from others. And we close that down and say, ah, not for me, I'm good. And so you don't even have access to your full self. You have walls within yourself that you don't go into or invite people into. And I think this is ultimately because we are walling ourselves off from God himself, from that persistent and intimate, and we feel sometimes intrusive, presence of God, presence of the love of God trying to come and meet with us, and we're busy. Oh, no, I just got married. Oh, I got to go check on the cattle. Oh, no, I'm building a house. I got stuff to do. I don't think I want to go into the banquet right now. And so Jesus says to them, as we said, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't do these sorts of things. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. What I want you to see here from the beginning is that Jesus, as God himself in the flesh, though man like one of us, is describing to us and trying to reclaim for us our image of God and who he is. And I think at the end of the day, we are terrified that God is like someone on the other, he's in a mansion on the other end of the electric fence and he's got snipers out. And if I was going to get in, man, he's just going to shoot me with his holiness and his anger and wrath. And we, we terrified of him. But he comes out in Jesus and becomes humble and walks with us and suffers with us and takes sin upon himself and takes his, our wounds in his flesh and is with us to tell us, my arms are open wide to you. I am bringing open God's presence to the world. All you have to do is believe him and you walk in. You get to be embraced. The throne that you fear becomes a throne of grace that you can approach with confidence. Jesus is coming to tell people this is not the way God is. God doesn't have uh, preferred status for special people. He's out there saying, you come in. You, you seem busy. I'm still inviting you. Too busy? Okay. Invite that person. Now go invite all these other people who we think will come in. The ones who aren't invited into the inner rooms of the world. See, this is because God doesn't have any fear in his heart. Simple to say, but think about that. God himself has no fear in his heart. He's not afraid of this world. He's not afraid of any predator or any person or any nation. He's not afraid of you. He's not afraid of the worst you can throw at him. Because he has no fear in his heart, in fact, what we're told is that God is love, and what originates in his heart is everything we know and think of as love, that that is what fills his heart, then he can come, and it says that God's love casts out fear, like a demon exercised from an old haunted house. He comes, and his love casts the fear out of our hearts, and out of our churches, and out of our communities. It exercises it, that we might be filled instead with love, and when we're filled with love, we don't build walls we knock them down, and we welcome people in. Just this morning, I read a psalm. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. The Lord is on my side. What can man do to me? 
It's so much better to take refuge in him than to trust in any of the kings and rulers of the world, the psalm said. But of course, those who have a vested interest in maintaining this world and the walls they've made or they thrive because of will not be interested. You heard me just allude to that. I won't read it again just for the sake of time. I've bought a field. Send my excuses. Not interested. They've got stake in the game now. They got little kingdoms to protect. They're not really interested in crossing the fence and going into God's great banquet feast. On the front of your bulletin, a great preacher and writer said this, God is the eccentric host who, when the country club crowd all turn out to have other things more important to do than come live it up with him, he goes out into the skid rows and soup kitchens and charity wards and brings home a freak show. That is what Jesus is about and what God is like. He's going out to get those who are left out and locked out and overlooked and walked past and ignored and unloved by this world. And those people respond in droves. They come in and they're ready like, wait, I get to get in? I get to be a part of this? It's a great feast? Amazing. I thought only the uppity people got to go in here. This is amazing. And they're hungry and thirsty for God's righteousness and his kingdom. And I hope that that's what our church looks like more and more. Even if we're dressed up nice and I have, you know, my uniform on. That we are a people that know our need and find ourselves hungry and thirsty to be welcomed and to welcome those out there who don't believe they are welcomed into God's presence. Don't believe they're welcomed into a church community. Are we becoming a great banquet feast for the outcasts? He tells his servants, and this might be a stand-in for us, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city. Bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. He said, sir, we did it. They came in. And this is so interesting. And still there is room. Still there is room. The room's never going to run out. <laughs> There's always more room in the kingdom of God for you and for the person you think is so beyond the reach of God, even if that's yourself or someone you know. There is always more room. There's even room for your enemy to become reconciled and to be welcomed and embraced. I just want to say that I think we actually have an opportunity. If this is what God is doing, and he is still doing it in and through the church, then we don't have to even do that much more. We just have to be what we are, which is a community of welcome in a world of walls. See how necessary and important. I hope we can do this every week to just describe our world, look at it from the top, side, bottom, and to see who's left out and who's hurting, and ask ourselves, are we being the difference in the world that God is calling us to be? I mean, have you ever actually felt deeply unwelcome somewhere? Think about a time. What was that like? How did it feel? How did you react or get through it? Did you leave? Did you bow up and you say, ah, this place is dead anyway, I'm out of here? Did you confront someone? Did you hide? It's important to reflect on things like this, at church especially, because the church has often been a place where many people feel unwelcome. And we can and should reflect on why that is. Certainly, top of the list reasons include racism, various discriminations against those who are different, treating outsiders as enemies rather than invitees on the guest list, moral superiority and self-righteousness, coming up with whatever the boundaries are, your particular theological boundaries or your particular moral boundaries or your particular ways, and then saying that only the people who act like me get to be a part of this and consider Jesus and come to my services. 
and sometimes just simple default insider culture, which all institutions and groups get, not realizing that we need to explain things and make it understandable and legible and easy to participate for those who are visiting. But again, I think this is because we often feel unwelcome ourselves. Even as Christians, you feel unwelcome. You're afraid that you don't have a place, and so you find these little ways to even turn church into a small kingdom, a little tiny settlement out in the great plains. But we are called to be welcomed into God. And that's what I want you to hear this morning. It's very simple. If we want to be a people of welcome in a world of walls, and if that's what we are called to be, then all we have to do, first and foremost, is to allow ourselves to continuously, in a renewing way, always be welcomed back into God's presence, to return again and again to his great banquet feast. I know it's kind of a circular argument, but if you want to have a reason to stay in church, then keep going to church. Come to this service. Come to other ways. Come to other services. Come to other ways that the church embodies the life of Christ. Service projects, celebrations, fellowship, prayer, all these things. Come to the body and life and work of Christ and be welcomed, not only by people, but be welcomed back into the love of God himself. Ask, if you're exploring Christianity this morning, you just find yourself here invited by a friend or for whatever reason, just go read the Jesus of the Gospels. Forget what this preacher says. Forget what you've heard on TV. Forget the radio. Read Jesus of the Gospels. I'll let him take care of business on his own. See if he's not persuasive and interesting and different than any human being who's ever lived. If there's not something compelling there about a God, if this is true that he were God and God is really like this, then he must be a person of welcome. He must be a person that is tearing down all the walls of hostility in the world and making people into one. And of course, you keep reading through the gospel, you get into Acts and you see that's exactly what he did. In church after church, he was reconciling. He said, there's now in Christ Jesus, in this community, although there's all these divisions and walls in Jerusalem and all over the known world, there is in this church now neither slave nor Greek, or slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. You're one and the same. You belong to one another and to him. There is no hierarchy. There's no secret password for the special place in the building. You are invited. And if you will believe that again and again, that God just welcomes you, that his throne is a place of grace rather than of hatred for you because of who you are in Christ, then you will begin to have your fear turned more and more into love and you'll begin to want to see walls torn down rather than built even while you use the useful ones from rain and from strangers in a big city, okay? But you will have a posture of crossing fences Cutting them down, going through doors, finding people, and saying, who's interested? We've got a great banquet going on over here. God has sent me out to invite you. Where are you? Who wants to come? You're busy? Okay, I get it. Yeah, you're busy. 40 million of you leaving the church? That's fine. God is the God of history. He's not afraid of that. He is right now offering you a banquet. If we will be welcomed, then we will become a people of welcome. And that is what God is doing with or without us and our church. He's made a safe space for us, and we can return to it again and again. He is our safety and our security. He is now dwelling in the throne room of our hearts and our churches. But he's also promised that in eternity, he is going to open up this feast to the whole world. When Revelation describes the everlasting city that is somehow now coming down by faith 
not by sight, but will eventually really be here when he makes all things new on this new heavens and new earth. There's a picture of a city, and it says this in Revelation, right at the end of the Bible. I see no temple in the city. You don't need a temple because the Lord God himself is there and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. By its light, the nations will walk. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. So the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut. Its gates will never be shut. People will be bringing their glory and honor of all the nations into the city again and again. In fact, one of the last things that Jesus says to his disciples is that the church is going to go out, and even the walls of hell will not be able to withstand the growth of God's people, his welcoming people. That even that gate that is born will finally be knocked down and the kingdom of God and of his presence and of his love and his welcome will flood over all things and break in. If this is secure for us, what have we to fear now? We have to fear nothing. In another article, just to close with this little illustration, Anne Voskamp, a writer, was talking to a farmer recently out in the West, and they were talking about the church, but they're also talking about farming, and they have doing this little metaphor, and she just wrote this thing. She's talking to a man named Tib Pearson. She said, Tib was there with his red wing work boots and his worn John Deere hat, and his hands weathered and etched like a grain cedar rail. And he says, there's a reason that God called us his body and not his estate. A body is connected with sinews and veins, but an estate is divided with fences and lines. He said this with his hands the way the man of the land does, and you could see how his hands knew rusted wire and gnarled barbs and how to free things caught in fences. And Tib closed with this. He said, you got to cut down the fences sometimes, or you will cut up the body. May God help us to be a place of welcome in a world of walls. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.